stand. You may be seated. I invite you to join me now in taking your copy of God's Word and turn with me to the book of Nehemiah, chapter 1. It's Nehemiah, chapter 1. If you were with us last Sunday, either in person or online, do you know that we have begun our fall sermon series on this book of Nehemiah. And so last Sunday, we looked at the first four verses to help us get a background on, on who Nehemiah was, why Nehemiah is writing this book, the Christ-centered focus on this, the context of what all is happening, and again, that Christ-centered focus of how he responded to this bad news at Jerusalem by praying. His immediate reaction was in prayer, so we're going to look at that this morning. Now, we're going to read all of chapter 1 because, again, it gives us that context, and from chapter, or, sorry, verse 5 onward, uh, we see, uh, we read Nehemiah's prayer. And so what we're going to do this morning is begin to look at that prayer, uh, begin to get some idea about it, and then we're going to come back to it again next week. So uh, this morning is is part one of a two-part series on Nehemiah's prayer. Uh, With all that being said, that is what we're going to do this morning with Nehemiah chapter one. Uh, So let's do like we have seen with the example of Nehemiah. Let's go first to the Lord in prayer as we come before his word. So join me now as we pray. Uh, Father, we do take upon the example we see for us throughout Scripture. And that's when we know we're going to come before you, especially in this time of worship and your word, that we want to be prayerful. Because we come to you as those who need your help. We come weak and needy to this task. On our own, we would not hear what we need to hear. But with you, through the ministry of your Spirit, may we hear your voice. May we hear your truth. May we be encouraged by it, convicted, uh, convicted by it, and comforted by it. So may it not just be my voice this morning. Oh, Father, may I just be the messenger of the good news you have for us in Nehemiah chapter 1. Bless us and guide us and encourage us in this way. We pray now in Jesus' name. Amen. So Nehemiah chapter 1. We will stand together now for the reading of God's word. The words of Nehemiah, the son of Hakaliah. Now it happened in the month of Kislev, in the 20th year, as I was in Susa the citadel, that Hanani, one of my brothers, came with certain men from Judah. And I asked them concerning the Jews who escaped, who had survived the exile, and concerning Jerusalem. And they said to me, the remnant there in the province who has survived the exile is in great trouble and shame. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down, and its gates are destroyed by fire. As soon as I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days. And I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. And I said, and, and this is Nehemiah's prayer, O Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments, let your ear be attentive and your eyes open. To hear the prayer of your servant that I now pray before you day and night for the people of Israel, your servants, confessing the sins of the people of Israel, which we have sinned against you. Even I and my father's house have sinned. We have acted very corruptly against you and have not kept the commandments, the statutes and the rules that you command your servant Moses. Remember the word that you commanded your servant Moses, saying, if you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the peoples. 
But if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, though your outcasts are in the uttermost parts of heaven, from there I will gather them and bring them to the place that I have chosen to make my name dwell there. They are your servants and your people, whom you have redeemed by your great power and by your strong hand. O Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servants and to the prayer of your servants who delight to fear your name and give success to your servant today and grant him mercy and the sight of this man. Now I was cupbearer to the king. The grass withers and the flowers fade. The word of our God, even Nehemiah 1, written some 2,500 years ago, still stands firm today. Amen. You may be seated. Your, your nightstands may look like my nightstand that is messy. There's a clock on it, there's a lamp on it, and I have three stacks of books. One stack are the books that I'm currently reading through. The other stack is the, pl- the books I plan on getting to do or getting to to read. And that stack seems to always get larger. The last stack of those books are those I keep there all the time because I turn to them time and time again. And that book and that stack are, are devotionals and biographies. That's what I think of as my spiritual stack of books. Because those are the books I turn to to help me in my spiritual growth. And in that stack has been this little finished book that has been been sitting there now probably for 10, 12 years now. And it's a rather thin book of the biography of Robert Murray McShane. It's one of those I pick up every now and then so I can read a chapter or a paragraph or two or maybe a chapter or two of it. And it's the biography of a faithful Christian man and minister. His biography has done so much good for my, my own mind and heart, along with numerous other Christians as well, because it's the biography, as we said, of this Scottish minister named Robert Murray McShane back in the 17th century. And Robert Murray McShane has this fascinating life. And part of the fascinating part of it is, is how much he packed into so few short years. He died young at the age of 29, just right before he turned 30. He had only pastored for a handful of years. But in that handful of years, he developed this reputation of a life marked by Christ. A life marked by his remarkable love of Christ and for his people. And he was pastoring some difficult people, but he he loved them. He loved he loved being their pastor. He loved pointing them to Jesus and everything he knew to do. Robert Murray McShane is one of those few people I have known of in my life where you look at him and you say, he loved Jesus. And I want to love Jesus like he did. So it's an encouragement for me to go to that biography and pick it up and be convicted of my own lack of love, but be encouraged to grow in that love. But he is also known for his love of prayer. He loved to spend as much time as he could in prayer. Now, he's not one of those who neglected other duties to pray, but when he had the opportunity to pray, he would do so. And so it's from this love of Christ and for his people and his love of prayer that I came across this quote that has stuck with me. It is counsel that has encouraged me over the years where McShane says this. 
if I can hear Christ praying for me in the next room, I would not fear a million enemies. Yet the distance makes no difference. He is praying for me. Isn't that a wonderful view of prayer? That helps me to see this other layer of of Christ and his love for me. To sit there and imagine that if I could just hear Christ in the next room through the walls praying for me, what would I have to fear? My Lord and Savior is so near to me and he is praying for me. I can go out and face any enemy out there, yet the distance makes no difference because I know he is praying for me. So as Christians, we have that privilege of knowing that Jesus is praying for us. We confess that every Sunday when we come to Lord's Prayer and say He ascended to the right hand of God the Father Almighty. That is a reference to His role as mediator. And what mediator means, in a sense, is chief prayer. So every Sunday we are confessing that we believe that Jesus right now is at the right hand of God, right hand of God the Father praying. And not just general prayers, but he's praying specifically for you and for me. So although he may not physically be in the room next to us, he is at the right hand of the Father praying for you right now. And what a great encouragement that is in prayer. And what a great privilege we have of knowing that. But we also have this privilege of hearing Jesus pray. We, 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 we think of his teaching the Lord's Prayer. We pray this every week, just like we confess. But we need to remember that what we pray every week is a prayer. It's what Jesus taught his disciples to pray. When they came to him and said, Jesus, teach me how, teach us how to pray. He said, pray then like this. It is a prayer. So it's bothersome when you go to other places and they say, let us us say the Lord's Prayer together. Or let's recite the Lord's Prayer together. No! It is a prayer. It's the prayer of Jesus. It's the prayer that Jesus has taught us to pray. So when we pray the Lord's Prayer, there's a sense where we are eavesdropping in on the prayer life of Jesus. Then we go to the Gospel of John chapter 17 to the great high priestly prayer there and we are able to eavesdrop in on how Jesus was praying for us back then and I'm convinced how he is praying for us now. Do you want to know what it's like for Jesus to be standing at the right hand of the Father now praying for you? Go read John chapter 17. There's a very real sense that's the essence of how Jesus is praying for us. So we can, in a very real and very near sense, hear Jesus praying for us. We have this privilege of eavesdropping in on the prayer life of our Lord and Savior. We, in a sense, we get to put our ears to the wall, our ears to the vents, and hear Jesus praying for us. But along with that privilege, we have the privilege of hearing other Christians pray as well. We have the book of Psalms which serve as prayers. We sing them, but they're also prayers. We think of Psalm 51, and David has committed that sin of adultery with Bathsheba and all the the, the things that came from that with the killing of Uriah. He has been confronted by Nathan. And so David retires to his room, and we can imagine him as at night, and maybe it's a dark and stormy night. 
And there's a candle next to his bed. And, and David is on his knees and his face is against the bed and his eyes are clenched shut. His hands are clenched in front of him. And we hear him pray, have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. O Lord, wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. We hear David praying that. We can almost imagine the tears coming down his face as he is confronted with his sin, with his brokenness, and he prays this to God. And this morning, we have the privilege of overhearing Nehemiah's prayer here as well. So in Scripture, we are given the privilege to eavesdrop in on Jesus and his people's prayers. And it's important for us as children of the living God to take advantages of this opportunity. This, these prayers aren't just fillers in Scripture. This isn't just to take up space so they can make the Bible big enough to make it economical to print. God has recorded these prayers here for us for a reason. It's for our good. It's for our good because prayer is a learned habit. When you, when you think back on when you first learned how to pray, it's probably awkward, wasn't it? A lot of stumbling and fumblings. A lot of, uh, um, what do I say next? But you find that the more you pray and the more you heard others pray, the more your prayers grew. Jonathan Edwards taught that prayer is as natural an expression of faith as breathing is to life. Now, breathing is natural to us, isn't it? We don't think, we often don't give a lot of thought to our breathing. But prayer is natural, but it's a learned expression. We need examples. We need teaching. We need to sit at the feet of other more mature Christians and learn how to pray. And that's the wonderful privilege we have in Scripture. We get to sit at the feet of Jesus himself and learn how to pray. We get to sit at the feet of David, a man after God's own heart, and learn how to pray. We get to sit at the feet of Paul, the great apostle, and learn how to pray. We get to sit at the feet of Nehemiah, the faithful servant who went to rebuild the wall, and learn how to pray. We also have the privilege and that we need to listen to the prayers of other Christians. I think that's one of the great benefits of a church prayer meeting. Not only are we praying with and for each other, but we're learning how to pray from each other. So each Wednesday evening as we, as we are praying, I'm learning how to pray from y'all. And I'm thankful for that. So I can tell you in our Coming up on 10 years of, of being here, my prayer life has benefited from praying with you and learning how to pray from you. So this is a shameless plug that every Wednesday night at 6 o'clock we have a meal and at 6.30 the adults get together and we pray. And that's our emphasis is on prayer and then we go into a Bible study. But let me just say this. If you look at your prayer life and you think it could be better, Six o'clock on Wednesday evenings, come get your belly filled. And at 6.30, get your heart filled by praying with and for each other and learning how to pray. 
God has given us these opportunities. We need to take advantage of them. And so we're going to spend a couple weeks of taking the opportunity of, uh, 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 of being with Nehemiah and looking at his prayer. And the first lesson of prayer we learn from Nehemiah is the posture of prayer. Remember years ago, I was raised a good Baptist boy. And you learn how to pray by bowing your heads, closing your eyes, and putting your hands together. And then when I got to seminary, Richard Pratt wrote a book that said, Pray with your eyes wide open. And it blew my mind. Did we pray with our eyes wide open? He was kind of talking more spiritually. But when we think about posture of prayer, that's what we think about. Do we sit to pray? Do we stand to pray? Do we get on our knees to pray? Not here. We're not Episcopal. We don't have prayer benches, knee benches. But what is our posture of prayer? Do we keep our eyes open or closed? Do we clench our hands? Do we put them out? But the posture we're talking about here isn't that sort of posture. It's the posture of how Nehemiah handles his prayer life. It's not so much what body his position is in. It's how he handles his prayer life. So we looked at last week, he, he has heard about the issues in Jerusalem. The city has been, uh, has been abandoned for, I believe, it's close to 100 years at this point. And 13 years before this, Ezra and, and others have come back after the exile. And now Nehemiah gets an update, and the update isn't a good update. The wall is still, it, it still has been destroyed. It's not in a working condition. The, the gates are destroyed. The city is exposed. It's unprotected from enemies and from, and from vagrants. Times are not good in God's city. And as we talked about as well, Nehemiah is a man of action. We will see that throughout this. Nehemiah is not one who's, who, who tends to twiddle, twiddle his thumbs together and go, hmm, what shall we do? He's a man of action. And his first reaction to this is prayer. Before Nehemiah does anything else, he prays. There is nothing else Nehemiah thinks he ought to do when he hears about this but pray. And that's a posture of prayer for us, isn't it? That our reaction to any every situation should first be prayer. But I think we find there are times when we as Christians are guilty of acting before we pray. We jump before we think. We hear of an issue and we start going, okay, how are we going to fix this? We need a plan of action. We, I need to get this done. I need to get that done. How are we going to get this done? And at some point along the way, somebody goes, Maybe we should pray about this. Oh, yeah, that's a good idea. Maybe, maybe we ought to pray about this. We're putting the proverbial cart before the horse. Listen, Nehemiah knows that Jerusalem needs a wall. That's just common sense. They need a wall. And Nehemiah knows that he's in a position that can possibly be helpful in getting that done because he's a close advisor to the king. He has access to the king where he can go in and say, Hey, king, we've got an issue. Can you help with this? Nehemiah knows their action to be taken, and he could be the catalyst for that action. So what does he do? He prays. He doesn't order blueprints. He doesn't put together a, 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 you know, a work order uh, to, to get people together. He doesn't start bringing tools together. There's no action except prayer. So from Nehemiah, we learn that the posture of prayer should always come first. 
There may be some need of action from us. But the action should proceed from prayer, not prayer from action. And I think this is indicative of this. Sometimes we can think of prayer as a last resort. How many times have we found ourselves kind of apologetically saying to somebody, well, all I can do is pray for you. They come and, and, and kind of unload their burden. This is what's going on. You go, you almost have this tone like, I'm sorry. All I can do is pray for you. And the implication there is what? I, I wish I could do more for you than just pray. I wish I could be more of a person of action. I don't just want to pray. I want to do more. We, have, we carry this tone of, I'm sorry. All I can do is pray. I was confronted with this. I may have told y'all this story before. and Now I tend to repeat my story. So thank y'all for being patient and hearing these stories over and over again. Uh, but down in Georgia, when I was serving at the White Oak ARP Church there, one, one morning after our Sunday morning worship, I was standing in the breezeway and talking with a, a dear lady in the church, and she was having some issues, and she was telling me about it. And, and I thought, well, let me be very, very pious. And I said to her, I'm, I'm sorry to hear this. I, all I can do is pray for you. Yeah, apologetically, right? Wish I could do more for you, Miss Charlotte. All I can do is pray for you. Miss Charlotte is one of the dearest saints I've ever met. But she had a look she could give you that would freeze you in your tracks. And I was always glad I wasn't her children or grandchildren because I thought I would melt under that. But she gave me that look when I said that to her. And she said, no, James, what I think, what you, what I think you meant to say is that what you will first and best do is pray for me. And then you will find something else to do. And you know what I said? Yes, ma'am. Yeah, that's the only response to it, right? She was right. I didn't need to apologize for the only thing I could do to is pray for her. Prayer is never a last resort. It's always the first resort. Nehemiah, a man of his time, knowing the need, didn't think of prayer as a last resort. He thought of it as his first, most, and best thing he could do. So he prayed. And so we learn from Nehemiah that posture of prayer. There's the first, most, and best thing we can know to do. We know nothing better than to, we should know nothing better than to enter into a situation that has been saturated with prayer. I had a pastor friend call me a couple weeks ago. He said, I need, I need, I need you to pray. Uh, he was having some issues with people in church. Matter of fact, people in church thought their house was haunted. And they had all these kind of crazy stories. And he said, look, I need you to pray about this because we're not sure if there's really like a demon possession or if they're crazy. So he and two other pastors were going over to deal with this. And so this, this, this pastor friend of mine was calling around to all his other pastor friends and saying, here's the situation. Make sure to pray for us. Because like he said, if it is demon-possessed and you want to go in and saturate with prayer, but if it's a mental issue, it needs prayer as well. They go and find out there's probably more to do with mental issues than it is with demon possession. But it was a good example to remind me 
the Christian being a person of action always begins with prayer. We don't go running in like heroes. We get down on our knees because that's the first, most, and best thing we know to do. But the other lesson of prayer we learn from Nehemiah in a posture prayer is the time he devoted to praying. Now, when you get to the Old Testament, you're dealing with a different timekeeping there. It doesn't keep months like we do. We're in the Roman Greco calendar. But for what we know about it, we, in the beginning of chapter 1 and chapter 2, we're given this length of time in the month of Kislev and the month of Nisan. And we put that together, it, it equals out somewhere to be around three to five months. And what does Nehemiah say? He said he prayed for days, which is meant to be understood as covering this entire period. So from the time he heard about the situation to the time where he had some confidence in what to do was three to five months, and he did nothing else but pray about it. He did nothing else but devote himself to prayer for that length of time. That was his action. And, 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 and notice what he does here. He doesn't throw out one or two impatient prayers because that's what we do, isn't it? God, I need you to fix this right now. It's the next day. All right, God, why haven't you fixed this right now? And then the third day, we're like, well, forget it. I'm done praying. I've already asked you twice. Kind of like parents with children, right? I've asked you twice. I'll make, I'll make me ask you a third time. But that's how we get so impatient with our prayers. So we just throw out these impatient prayers. God, do this. And then we get frustrated when God doesn't answer. Nehemiah gets on his knees and prays for months. Patiently waiting on God's timing. Patiently waiting on God's insight. He's like like Jacob. Remember the story of Jacob wrestling all night with God? That's how... That's how Nehemiah is. He's grabbed a hold of God in prayer and he's holding on with all he had. He's doing as Jesus has taught us in the Gospels. He has sought. He has not. He has pursued God in prayer. He is is persistent in prayer. So not only was prayer Nehemiah's first action, it was his most action. And I know that's bad grammar. I couldn't think of another way to say it. But it was his most action. It's what he did every day. Every morning at 7 o'clock, the alarm clock will go off. So you hit snooze, wake up five minutes later, hit snooze, wake up five minutes after that. Get up, take a shower, eat breakfast, do his devotions, go to work as a cupbearer, enjoy good wine throughout the day, and then come home that evening. And each evening he came home, he would find time to go into his prayer closet and he prayed and he did this every day for months. And as we'll talk more about next week, what we have here in his prayer isn't a singular prayer. It's probably a compilation of all of his prayers. There's a structure to it. We'll talk more about that structure next week. But it seems like initially his prayer was one for guidance about what to do. Oh God, the, 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 the wall is torn down. Give me wisdom on what to do. Then as God gave him that insight, it became clear to him that he would need to go to the king to, to ask for this help the prayer would take on a greater urgency, anticipating of having to go before the king. So Nehemiah prayed and he prayed often. And that is meant to be our posture of prayer. We pray and we pray often. We all know that wonderful hymn, 
what a friend we have in Jesus. Remember what we're saying. Have we trials and temptations? Is there trouble anywhere? We should never be discouraged. Why? Do you remember what it says? Take it to the Lord in prayer. We can always imagine Nehemiah singing that. He prayed. And he prayed often. J.C. Ryle wrote this. Ask whether you pray because a habit of prayer is one of the surest marks of a true Christian. All the children of God on earth are alike in this respect. From the moment there is any life and reality about their religion, they pray. Just as the first sign of life in an infant when born into the world is the act of breathing, so the first act of men and women when they are born again is praying. So again, I ask whether you pray because a habit of prayer is one of the surest marks of a true Christian. So we learn from Nehemiah that we are to pray. We are to pray often. But the wonderful thing about Nehemiah's prayer is that it isn't about Nehemiah. The wonderful thing about Nehemiah's prayer is that it points us to Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. We think of what we have been taught and what we know of the posture of prayer for Jesus. Jesus prayed first, most, and often. We're told in the Gospels that he would get up in the morning so he could go off and pray. There are times the disciples would have to go and find him because he was off praying. He prayed with his disciples. He taught his disciples how to pray. As he sat there in the upper room Taking the Passover and instituting the Lord's Supper, he saw Golgotha on the horizon. And he knew as soon as he was done with that evening in the upper room with his disciples, what would he do? He would go to the Garden of Gethsemane. He would fall on his face and knees in prayer. Jesus prayed first, most, and often. And he perseveres in prayer. As we've already said, we confess every week that Jesus stands at the right hand of God the Father Almighty as our chief prayer. So what has Jesus been doing since his ascension? He is praying. What is Jesus doing right now? He is praying. And who is he praying for? For you and for me. Jesus has prayed us into salvation. Jesus has prayed us to this point in our lives and Jesus will pray us home. He perseveres in prayer for us. He taught it and he does it. So we look at Nehemiah. He is pointing us to Jesus in that posture of prayer and that encourages us because there is no greater act of love than to pray someone and to be prayed for. Because think about what that means what it means for you to be prayed for, that your name, your person, your concerns, your situation is remembered and brought before God to ask for God's guidance and help. To personally ask God for you, for his love, care, and mercy, for his abounding grace to be shed on you. There's no greater act of love than to be prayed for, and there's no greater act of love than to pray for somebody else. 
If you are mad at somebody, if you are angry at somebody, if you find that you are tempted to hate somebody, then pray for them. Because that's the greatest act of love. It was because Nehemiah knew the love of God and loved God in return that he prayed. And it's because of Jesus' love for you that he has taught us to pray. That he allows us to eavesdrop in, his, in on his prayers and give us examples of prayers that he prays for us right now. So when we know the love of Christ and we respond in faith and love to that love, then we find that we pray. We find that we are growing to be more like Nehemiah. We know there is nothing better for any situation than to pray first, most, and often about it. We persist in prayer because this is how Jesus prays for me. This is how Jesus prays for us. And this is how he teaches us to pray. So we join Nehemiah in that posture of praying first, most, and often, and persisting in it. Next week, we will come back to this chapter and we will look further into this prayer. But let me encourage you as we go out this week to think upon Nehemiah, to think upon Jesus, and to be brought to this posture of prayer. Let's pray together.